Let me pray. Father, we are just so incredibly grateful for this space and this morning and food and coffee and the time to come together and learn for your glory. So bless us, Lord. Bless our learning. Uh, fulfill our hearts with hope and allow us to, to build Christendom here. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Good morning. Look at the timing. Good morning and burritos. All right. Um, we got food. No, no, it's wonderful. Don't, don't even sweat it. So I, I wanted to kick this off with just, just a comment of, have you ever noticed how fast negativity spreads? Like legitimately, right? It, people are addicted to negativity. We see that in books. We see it in movies. We see it in our own homes. We see it in our lives, right? It is easy to give the negative or the worst case scenario. And, and I have the spiritual gift of being able to develop the worst case scenario very rapidly. If you are ever curious in any scenario what the worst case could be, feel free to ask. But we know that negativity can spread like wildfires, and it's not just kind of the greater culture where we experience this. This, this gets experienced in the church as well, unfortunately. And just this last week, I heard a clip on our, our ride up to Moscow. We were cleaning out my podcast list, and we were listening to a clip from a famous Baptist pastor named John MacArthur. And this clip was, was sad to me because it kind of emphasizes what I'm going to label, what some other people have labeled, I stole their label, loser theology. But before I, I read what he said, I, I want to point out that I, I respect John MacArthur. I haven't met him, but I have been influenced by him. I, I've read his books. I think a lot of his New Testament commentary is really on point. I appreciate and respect his ministry. I respect how he stood up during COVID, which is really funny when he talks about kind of this loser theology. He actually lived out he lived out hopeful theology while, while preaching loser theology. But where I do agree with him on a lot of things, there are some big things that, that his theological approach and perspective I, I disagree greatly with. And one person pointed out, which is probably important, sometimes when we get audio clips of people, we're just getting a snapshot. And we all know that those can be manipulated. I have one called Bad High Five. It involves, involves Vern's son. <laughs> if you, if you, right, if you, if you ask for the high five at the wrong point in the middle of the sermon, it can sound like you're high fiving the wrong things, right? So, so we know that things that can be cut and taken out of context could be problematic. So it's important to note that this is not something I'm about to read that's taken out of context for John MacArthur. This has been his stance religiously and theologically for for, the, for pretty much his whole ministry. It's a consistent message that he has preached to a lot of people for decades. It is something that he believes. And, and so I'm not here to, to dissect John MacArthur's eschatological position. But what I want to do is to use him as an example, as a popular Baptist preacher, preaching something that a lot of preachers have preached. And, and I want you to look and think about if it gives you any hope. Okay? So uh, he gave a sermon a few weeks ago, and it was titled, We Lose Down Here. First right there in the name, it's not particularly hopeful. So this is what he says. I listened to this like five times trying to transcribe and type it at the same time. There wasn't a, uh, a transcription. So if, I, uh, if I've missed a word, the omission is mine and not John MacArthur's. He says, oh, guess what? We don't win down here. We lose. Are you ready for that? Oh, you're a post-millennialist? You thought you would just waltz into the kingdom of heaven as you took over the world? No. We lose down here. Get it? They killed Jesus. They killed the apostles. We're all going to be persecuted if many come after me. Let him deny himself. Garbage of prosperity gospel. He said, I love this clarity. We don't win. 
We lose on this battlefield, but we win on the big one. Like, yikes was the first thing that went through my mind. You're preaching to this huge crowd of folks, and you just told them, under no circumstances will you win. You win in heaven, but you won't win here. And, and this has been MacArthur's position from a long time. It's not an out-of-context clip, and this has been a, a position of a lot of evangelical churches for the last 100, 150 years. Do you guys remember, and this was before I was in church, so I never read it, but do you remember the ever-popular Left Behind series? That sold 80 million copies, and that was all pushing loser theology, right? They, they were basically, it's only going to get worse, this car will remain unmanned during the rapture. But it wasn't hope. It was everything's going to get worse. Everything's going to get destroyed. Just look outside. And, and so why do we call this loser theology? We call it loser theology because it is. Because it's theology that says here on earth you as Christians are going to lose. So sign up for Jesus and be prepared to lose. And, and can you imagine like, now you know that I use sports analogies because I'm really good at all the sports. Right. Uh, so can you imagine if you, were, uh, you have been drafted for the big team, you know, the big team, and they, they bring you into the locker room? Imagine Ted Lasso being like, all right, everyone, I want you all to be prepared to lose. Welcome to the team. You're going to lose. That's like the worst coaching ever, preparing everybody to lose. And he says, don't worry, don't worry. We're going to lose here. There's actually no way we can win. But sometime at a later distant time, don't worry about it, you will win in spirit. So enjoy losing now. Go team. Like literally, how would that actually motivate you, truthfully? It wouldn't, right? I would imagine that if your coach was telling you that you're constantly going to lose, it's not going to motivate you. So the question is, why does this matter? And, and here's, here's why it matters. And this matters greatly. It matters because what we believe about the end that, that we use that, the word eschatology. I'm going to define some words in a little bit. But what we believe about the end impacts how we live in the present. So I want to say that again because it's really, really important. What we believe about the end impacts how we live in the present. So we can't obviously just determine this by how we feel. We, we've talked a lot about how our feelings lie to us, and so we don't want to just trust our feelings. Joseph Stalin lived by his feelings and murdered millions and millions and millions of people. So we need to go back to Scripture, which is our rule and guide, and see what Scripture tells us about the end, because that's going to impact how we live in the present. And so that's what I want to do today. I want to look at Scripture, which is our rule and our guide, and I want to see what it says about are we losers or are we winners? Should we, should we be in despair or should we be in hope? And then what I want to do is look at what it means for our lives especially now that we're kicking off this summer of hope. And so, before we look at the Bible, I want to just define terminology, because terminology is important. And thankfully, Pastor Doug Wilson, in his blog, he calls it Blog and May Blog, which is a, a play on some words from Revelation, which is great. But he provided this three posts back in 2005 called a primer on eschatology. And, and he provides some just general, really easy-to-access definitions of these kind of theological terms. So first, I want to define eschatology, and, and it's a word that we use a lot. So eschatology is just a study of the last days or, or the end times. It is what somebody believes will happen at the end. Everybody has an eschatology. Even if you are a pagan and you, you don't believe in Jesus, 
your eschatology is nothingness. What you believe about the end impacts how you live your life now. And so, in the Christian world, when we use the term eschatology, we're thinking about end times. And much of that theological discussion has taken place around this concept of the millennium. The millennium. So, what is the millennium? Well, in the Christian context, you know it means a thousand, right, millennium. But in, Christ, in the Christian context, we're, we're specifically speaking about what John speaks about in Revelation chapter 20, 20, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. There's more in Revelation, but, but specifically the millennium, we're talking about this thousand years we see in Revelation 20. And much, much theological discussion has taken place about the book of Revelation, how it's interpreted, and, and how it's interpreted actually really matters. That, that's outside of the scope of what we're talking about today, but it will be something we will spend time as a church. But there are three primary views on the fulfillment of the prophecy of Revelation. The futurist, the historist, and the preterist, or what I would call the partial preterist. So, futurist views are those that say the prophecy of Revelation has not yet been fulfilled. This is the Left Behind series. This is kind of the the majority view of of modern evangelical churches. The historicist are, are the views that those who believe the prophecy of Revelation was fulfilled and then is being fulfilled down through church history. And then a preterist, or what we call partial preterist, semi-preterist, is one that believes that the, the, the prophecy of Revelation was filled, fulfilled largely in the first century. That's where I sit. And, and, and it's a bigger discussion why, but um, it's from a logical and a textual standpoint. Textually, it doesn't seem to make sense that Scripture would be talking about things in the immediacy of the future because it's speaking to people in the immediacy then. Obviously, it speaks to us now. But Paul is writing letters to churches then, right? Inspired by the Holy Spirit, they're canon, but, but Matthew is writing to Jews then. And so what we, we don't want to do is take things out of context and say, well, they were writing all this stuff to this particular audience right then. Oh, and this one verse is, only applies in 2,000 years. That, that, that doesn't actually make contextual sense. We can get into that a lot more in a lot more detail, but the point is, that it, it seems, logically and context, contextually, that when the, the authors of the Scripture are talking in the near future, they're talking about in the near future. And, and really what it's going to talk about is, is the destruction, Revelation, the destruction of the Holy Temple, which takes place in 70 A.D. So, bigger discussion, but I fall into that semi-preterist category. So, it's important also to note that the term millennium, when the Bible uses numbers, to be really careful. So the Bible is the literal Word of God, but sometimes it's delivered in allegory, sometimes it's delivered in prose, sometimes it's delivered poetically. That doesn't change that it's God's actual Word. Different literary devices are used to connect so that we, finite beings, can connect to an infinite being. So when we see terms like the millennium, a lot of times it's not speaking of a literal thousand years, speaking to a great period of time. We're talking about 70 times 70. We're going to read about that as we continue down our journey in the text we're studying at church. It's not actually, somebody wasn't using the abacus and counting out 70 times 70. It was to make an allegorical point about a lot. 
So sometimes things are used as imagery. Actually, Revelation is a whole book of allegory and imagery. And that doesn't change from the authority of Scripture, but we need to understand where that imagery is so that we can rightly interpret it. So I believe that the book of Revelation is a Christological book. That means it speaks about who the person of Christ is and the work that Christ is coming to do and has done. And it also makes prophecy about a very specific event, which is the fall of the temple in around 70 AD. So you might wonder why any of this has to do with the topic of hope. Well, it actually has to do everything with the topic of hope, because how you view the end determines how you live now. So, if you don't think it's getting better, you're not going to invest in a life in trying to make it better. If you think everything is only getting worse, you will live your life out like that. Now, if you don't think it's getting better functionally, I would tell you to look around a little bit harder. I'm going to give you proof on why the life is better now than it was before even though we live in clown world. So let's, let's look at some common, before we do that, eschatological, I said that word right, which is good, standpoints from a Christian perspective, okay? So we're going to talk about historic premillennialism, amillennialism, dispensational premillennialism, and the view that I now hold postmillennialism. You'll notice that the, the key word to all of that is millennial. So premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial. We are millennials. Ah, no, not in this. So, what, what this is, is these are different views on what the millennium in Revelation 20 is. And this matters because it determines how we view the end, and we have determined that how we view the end determines how we live our life now. So, historic premillennialism. This is a view that Christ will return prior to the millennium, and that He will reign on earth during this millennium. And so, the, his, the word historic is used because the early church fathers, like Justin Martyr, held this position. Historic premillennialism. Then there's a thing called amillennialism. This is what I held for a long time. Amillennialism holds there will be no earthly millennium. The prefix, therefore, is one of negation. Ah, ah, ah. The amillennialist does not believe there will be a literal millennium on earth. Rather, he interprets it in a spiritual sense which glorifies the saints reigning with Christ in heaven. Then there's dispensational premillennialism, which is kind of the predominant view now which was never predominantly the view historically. This is a, a variant form of premillennialism which arose in the 19th century and is held by a large number of American evangelicals today, right in the words. Many more Christians who would not call themselves dispensationalists have nevertheless picked up a few of the unique dispensationalist assumptions. These are assumptions about the Armageddon, the beast. This is where we get the idea that the number 666 is evil. This comes from a dispensational premillennial view. They talk about the Antichrist, you should probably do a Sunday school on the Antichrist. I was just reading a book while we were in Moscow about the Antichrist. It was really great. But this is the idea that, that Christ will re return prior to the millennium. But, but um, there are many additional aspects to this outside of historic premillennialism. End of the world, this teleportation rapture deal, um, big war, and basically everything is destroyed. This is a, a, a predominantly negative worldview. This is the view that, that John MacArthur holds. So, what's unique about dispensational premillennialism? And, and they mean dispensational because that means they, dispensationalists look at periods of time as dispensations of God. So, a dispensationalist would believe that Jews are still saved and that Israel still needs to be a country and that a temple is going to be physically rebuilt there. I don't think there's anything scripturally that backs that up because Jews and Christians are grafted together to make one body. 
Um, I, I don't believe that the Bible is in dispensations. I believe in covenant theology, which is what the Reformers held, and th that is that God's covenant started before the creation of the earth, goes through Abraham all the way through us, the new Israel. And the Jews have always been covenant people as well. That's what circumcision is a sign of the covenant. Uh, covenantally, if you, if you don't, I think if you don't believe in covenantal theology, it, you end up with all these gaps like, well, how is Abraham saved? How is Moses saved? Um, and so covenant theology unites the people of God through the entire timeline of the world. Dispensational puts everything in buckets, and you end up with all these holes. And, and it was never a historic view of the church. So the distinctives of dispensationalism are numerous. It teaches there will be a secret coming of Christ seven years before the millennium. Christ will preside over a reestablished Jewish state during the millennium. Temple sacrifices will come. The temple will be rebuilt. And a majority of evangelical American churches take this view. This is not the view of the historic church, ever. This is a relatively new phenomenon since the 19th century. And that, that timing is important. It's important to look at what people before us believed, to look at the, if, we, if we're trying to find the authenticity and the or, uh, orthodox faith of Christianity, we have to be looking over the whole period of the church history and Jewish history before. So that gets us to what is post-millennialism. This is the view that well, Christ will return at the end of the millennium. The millennium is generally understood as a golden age of gospel expansion, wherein the Great Commission is fulfilled. At the end of the period, when the nations will have been brought as disciples of Christ, Jesus comes back to destroy the last enemy, which is death, and then returning the earth to its original form of Eden. Not the destruction of the earth, but, but returning us to our original state here. We believe, we, we say it in the Apostles' Creed, we believe in the resurrection of what? If you, you all say that every week. The resurrection of the body is not to some spiritual place that we believe in an actual, the church has always believed, and the Jews have always believed, before the church, in a, res, a physical resurrection of the body. We believe in heaven. But we believe at, at, at the uniting of the new heavens and the new earth, it is a resurrection of our physical bodies back in Eden where death no longer lives, reunited together as the body of Christ. It's really hopeful. It's, and and the, it's, that's what the Bible supports. So I, I am now a post-millennialist, and you might ask why. Well, it's this thing called hermeneutics. You might say, he keeps saying big words. Hermeneutics is a fancy word for, for Bible interpretation. It's, a, it's the art and science and methodology of interpreting the Bible. One of the detractions that my mom will use is that that's just your interpretation. Well, it's not, because appropriately applied hermeneutics prevents it being my interpretation. It's not what Craig feels about something. It's a tool set on allowing the Bible to interpret itself, and it's a detailed process. It involves texts and authors and historical contexts. <laughs> he should stop smoking. Uh, <laughs> and right now I'm in this, I'm in my second PhD hermeneutics class, and it's an incredible amount of work, and it's really brilliant. I just read this book on apprenticing with the apostles and looking at the Old Testament through the way they used it in the New Testament because they were scholars of the Old Testament too. It's brilliant. But, but these hermeneutical tools are what pastors and theologians use to determine what the Bible means. And so to apply God's Word, we have to understand God's Word, and that's where hermeneutics helps us. And so here's what, here's what Pastor Wilson says about 
the distinct features of postmillennialism. So he said, we've, we've already talked about preterism, right? We talked about, we think that these, these, these prophecies are fulfilled in the past. So many of the prophecies of the Bible which premillennialists consider unfulfilled, postmillennialists believe are already fulfilled. This includes the Old and the New Testaments. We determine what has been fulfilled by the teaching of the New Testament. Psalm 2 provides a good example. It's repeatedly quoted and applied in the New Testament. We are taught the meaning of these prophecies with divine commentary. We look at the, the Bible as one continuous covenant of God. It gives us information about the old through the new and the new through the old, and it's, we see the fulfillment because we're not looking at it in, in sections, right? Another feature of postmillennialism is covenantalism, what I was talking about before. There are many Old Testament prophecies which prophesy a coming golden age of earth. Postmillennialism is not based upon a particular view of Revelation 20 alone. It is a hope that is grounded in the Old Testament, which finds fulfillment in the arrival of the kingdom of God in the New Testament. Below is an example. Pastor Wilson says, the, uh, uh, he was using Isaiah 11, 8 through 10. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hands in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now, how do we go about finding fulfillment of this? Well, the answer is important. We must look at where the New Testament places it. He's italicized it. You can't see that. I can, but I'll point it out. It says, now I say that Christ, Jesus Christ has come as a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God. This is italicized. To confirm the promises made to the fathers that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. For this season I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse. And he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles shall hope. And this is all coming from Romans. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written to you more boldly to you on some points, as reminding you, because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be of a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus and the things which pertain to God, for I will not dare speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. In short, Paul, Paul, because you're reading how Paul is using Old Testament prophecy, right? He is, places the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy squarely in the context of his mission and the ministry to the Gentiles in the first century world of grafting these people in that the Jews had said could never be grafted in, that could never be part of the body of God's people. And so if the New Testament tells us what Isaiah means, then guess what? That's what Isaiah means. Because <laughs> you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So what do we see? We see how Scripture, how God's covenant is consistent, the Old and the New Testaments. And see, we have to look at, we have to look at what God's telling us about the end bigger than just what He's saying in the book of Revelation. So easy to get hung up on that book because it's full of allegory, and you can get this really negative mindset out of it, and you can, you can, you can draw a lot of people in because fear does that. But Revelation's one book. It's not less important than any of the other books that tell us about the prophecy and about the end. 
What we believe about the end dictates how we live now. So let me, let me ask you a question. If you were tasked with a job, if you were told you had to do it, you have a new job. You, you are tasked with a job. But let's say, let's say the, man, the man who just hired you told you, no matter what, you're going to fail. It's actually impossible. The task that I have given you is impossible. What would your motivation be to go complete that task? <laughs> if he told you, we're going we're gonna to go charter to Pluto, which is still a planet as far as I'm concerned. Planet rights for Pluto, hashtag. You have to say hashtag before? Well, maybe I'm going to do it, and this is new. We're going to put the hashtag after the word. Mix up 2023. You've got to go to Pluto, but it's impossible. Everyone will die. What's your motivation? It's going to be terrible. Right, absolutely. Now I want you to think about this theologically. What is the history of God's covenantal people? It is one of winning. Watch, watch how, how God works through Abraham, through Abraham's descendants, uh, th th through Moses, through, through the, the Jews uh, crossing the Red Sea, for, from, uh, in, from slavery to freedom. Um, look at the success of the early church. It's one of winning, always. And Christ, Christ made it clear. Matthew 5.5, 5, if you remember back, we read the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the spiritually only places. No, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. They inherit the earth. Can you imagine the next, like, the, 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 it doesn't even make common sense. Congratulations. You are meek. You are following the path of righteousness. Destruction! Oh. You don't get to have it. Just kidding. No. God makes and keeps promises. We, we, we go over this over and over here. He keeps His promises. He keeps His promises. What about the Great Commission? Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of a couple of the nations. Sorry, all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He wants you to go make disciples. Does He want you to go make disciples so He can just have more people in heaven? Because dispensational premillennialism believes that. That's, when, that's the altar call. Close your eyes, raise your hand, you pick Jesus. And then we can write on the sheet, 25 more people pick Jesus today. Look how many more people we're getting to heaven. But, but that's not what, what Jesus told you. He said, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. What are disciples? They are people of action. It's not just like, go get people to sign up for Team Jesus so heaven is fuller. That doesn't make sense. Because everything that Jesus did, everything the disciples did, what we're talking about with the disciples right now in Matthew is them going out and doing work. If it was just, it's going to get worse and it's spiritual, it would be like, you pick Jesus, now go sit in your corner and pray a whole bunch until the world ends. The timing was perfect. And <laughs> you, can't, you just can't plan these things. Until the world ends. It's right. Um, and... And hang tight. Like, that's, that's not... That's amazing. All right. So let's, let's, think about, let's think about the Lord's Prayer. I, I want to read the Lord's Prayer really slowly. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where is it going to be done? 
on earth as it is in heaven. That's right. The church has turned into this dualistic thought here and there. Two kingdoms, the already benayad. I, I don't buy that. I did when I was first in seminary because it's, it's but the Bible, the Bible and, and historic Christianity does not support this. Uh, this. This idea of the world ending. Go ahead real quick. Right. I think what happens with loser theology is then people, it's the whole stupid cliche, like keep religion and politics together. 100%. Yourself. Yeah, keep it separate. You don't share You're, with anybody. And this is how you get your personal relationship with Jesus. And it's not, there's nothing about that yeah. that is kingdom building or the Great Commission. And That's you right. You can see it in the people that, that have that. That's right. And it's hopeless. It is hopeless. And, and so then people will say, well, the world's not getting better. So I'm going to prove to you very quickly. So we've got about 13 more minutes. First of all, the world isn't ending. It's not. And, and if we believe it's ending, then we're not going to invest in caring for it well and taking dominion over it. The world is getting better. We are better off than we were 10 years ago. We are better off than we were 100 years ago. I put a comma in the wrong place. We are better than we were 1,000 years ago. You see, the problem is we've, we've accepted this negative worldview because negativism, negativism sells. Cults have always promised doom and gloom and end times. Always. Get the sneaker. I made the sneakers joke last night. Get the, you know, drink the Kool-Aid, get the white sneakers right on the back of the comet. The world's going to end. You better get on the back of hale Bob. Jim Jones got a, a thousand people to kill themselves because of this doom and gloom end times kind of stuff, right? So you better be on the right team. You got to get on the right bandwagon. You got to get your friends on that bandwagon because everything's going to end and we're all going to die and you better be on team Jesus get to heaven. You are all going to die. But it's getting better. Well, so, and hell are real. Right. So so, well, sure. But look how many dystopian things we have in culture. Like, we love dystopian stuff video games, movies, books. I do too. Then there's World War I and World War II. And, and, and these actually really had a, had a foundational shift and change in the church. World War II changed the number of men that were coming to church, uh, the number of people that were murdered, the Holocaust, the rise of communism. People look back and how is it getting better? Millions and millions of people, 70 million babies, the, the Holocaust that is abortion. How is it getting better? And so these platforms became easy places for churches to push a negative worldview. The end is coming. Watch out for black helicopters. In case of rapture, this car will be left unmanned. Burn the unbel burn unbelievers, burn! It shall rain the fire upon you. Get on Team Jesus, get as many people to heaven as possible, because your merit badge, if you can get like 200 people to heaven, you get the free limo ride, you know, up. It's like the sell the magazine thing, right? Won't be here for long. Don't worry about the earth. But see, that's not what God said. And you have to go to the very, very, very beginning of the book. If you go to Genesis 1, 26 through 28, actually 25 is even better because it tells you to be fruitful and multiply. Where's my Bible? I'm going to read it 25. I, I had the, the thing on the iPad from 26. This is what I'm doing my PhD thesis on. Genesis. So listen to Genesis 1, 25. You can never find... And when you have to read in front of groups of people, you can never get to the page in the right place. Mm. Let us make... This is 26. Sorry. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply because the earth's going to end. No, sorry. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish and the sea, over the birds of the air and the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And he continues and talks about how God gave man every plant yielding seed. It's on the face of the earth, every tree. And they have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens, everything creeps and bread, the breath of life. And every, every green plant for food. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It's the first time God says very good. There was a morning, the sixth day. God created you in his image and gave you dominion over his creation to beautify it, to care for it. Why do you think plants are beautiful? Why do we, we put flowers here at church? Because we're taking dominion over creation. Because things are beautiful and they're getting better. They're not meant to be destroyed and blown up. Look at how God, after the flood, what did he promise Noah after the flood? I won't do this again. And he gives a rainbow as that symbol. That's why we say reclaim the rainbow. It's a reminder of God's covenant. It's not just about getting people in the Jesus club. God's taking care of who's in and who's out. He did that before the foundation of the world. So what's our goal? Well, it's to, to glorify God and enjoy Him, enjoy Him forever. Um, it, it, it's... it's it's not something we can do if we sit around being losers. See, we, we fulfill the Great Commission by sharing the gospel, knowing that God's already worked in people's hearts. So our job is to go represent accurately. But we glorify and enjoy Him by, forever by taking dominion over His creation, by, by, by loving our neighbor, right? 1 John 5, 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The things of the world. We're here. We overcome those things. We make all things new through Christ. Revelation 21.5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He will come again to renew all things. We see the renewal of things here and now. We see how God impacts people here and now. There's hope. Our job is to take dominion and cultivate it. I said earlier I was going to prove to you the world's a better place than it was 10 years ago, 100, 1,000 years ago, even with all this woke, clown world nonsense. Go look at Africa and the growth of the church. There are over 685 million Christians in Africa. The projection by 2025 is there will be more than 750 million Christians in Africa. We might have to move to Africa. What about mortality? 100 years ago, there was an infant death rate of 12.3 per thousand that was in 1923. In 1823, it was 462.9 per thousand. In 2023, it's 5.4. As long as they get that far. Yes. No, and I did, I did put in comment, it doesn't include abortion. But, if, but for live birth, 5.4 per thousand. In 100 years, it's incredible. The average lifespan in 1923 was 67. In 2023, it's 76.1. That 0.1 matters. What about clean water? You can get clean water in every civilized country. I had a moment the other day talking about the post-millennial hope when we were at the 
school end of year celebration with this guy, and he's like, I just don't think it's getting more hopeful. And I pointed at the bathroom and I said, you could drink clean water from the toilet. I mean, I'm not saying the toilet's clean, but the water that's coming into that toilet's clean water. Think about that. We have access in pretty much everywhere in the civilized world where you can drink water out of a tap. We have more access to food than ever, so much so that our poor people are fat. I don't mean that tongue-in-cheek, poverty is a problem, but, but this is the first time in the history of the world that people in poverty were overweight. Never have poor people suffered from obesity before. I'm sure all of you could come up with a million more examples of why things are getting better. Even coming back from Idaho, we had car issues. 20 years ago, we would have been stranded. Now, my 2015 Suburban has technology in it that turns off the igniters if a cylinder is failing so it doesn't have detonation or pre-ignition and cause damage to the vehicle. The world is getting better. The world is getting better. So what does this mean? Well, it means what you believe about the end dictates how you live your life right now. If you believe that it is getting better, if you believe that we are building towards a golden age of the church, we won't see it in our lifetime. We may not see it in our kids' kids' lifetime, but we are like the cathedral builders in Europe where we are building the cathedral for a hundred generations down the road. If we believe that, then we're going to live our lives like that. We're going to build, we're going to bring it into our work, we're going to bring it into our families, you're going to bring it into the cockpit. Every part of your life, you're going to be living for Jesus because you're building His kingdom here and now. That's why we talk about all of Christ for all of life. It's not just like a, a tagline, like it's really what, how we want to live our lives. It should impact how we go out and do. Not, not, not just like what we all do here, this is important, but it's what we do here out there how we live our faith in real time. Living for Christ means bringing the hope and joy of the gospel into everything, knowing that, that yes, of course, you're going to experience some persecution. Sure, Jesus promised you that, but He said you didn't have to do it alone, that He's with you, that He loves you, and you're blessed, and you're blessed because of it, because change is difficult. Walking upstream can be difficult. But Christ is at the right hand of the Father, which means all authority is granted to Him on heaven and on earth. There's no dualistic, like, well, this just isn't Jesus's. Well, the church here is, but everything else just isn't. Ah, God, take me now. When's the end going to come? I used to say that. No. He comes back. We believe in the second coming of Christ. He will make all things new. He will destroy His enemies at that time. But that's after we've gone out and Christianized this world. God bless you. Our job is to go out and do God's will on earth. And we do that by taking dominion, by caring for our environment. Like, think, think about it, and this happens sometimes in conservative circles. Well, the world's going to end anyways. Why care environmentally? Now, we don't want to make environmentalism our God by any means, right? Bless you. But we want to have good care and dominion over the earth. God, God gave it to us on purpose for that. He is. Um, we want to be resourceful. We want to build economies. We want to build families. And we do this because we're under the authority of the good and gracious God. And so, yeah, evil exists. We're here to fight that. How are you going to get rid of evil? You have to have more believers. You have to build Christian economies. I mean, ultimately, as long as there's sin, there'll be evil, but Jesus will take care of that then. But, but if, if you just believe it's going to get worse, you're just going to roll over and go, well, I can't do anything about it anyways. It's none of my business. What fights evil? God's kingdom. What fights evil? Peacemakers. That's what we do. We go to be peacemakers. And so we build. We build that and we do it in joy because we are people of hope. 
We don't fall into this trap of loser theology. That's what it sounds like. That's what loser theology sounds like. We don't want to live like losers. We want to live like winners. I said to a friend of mine, he doesn't, he's, he's almost here. He's close. He's so close. He's a Baptist that's about to baptize babies. It's good. It's almost a post-millennialist. And I said to him, I said, okay, even if it's wrong, why not live like it's right? He's like, I mean, no. He said to me, he's like, all, these, all you post-millennial guys always look like you're in joy. I was like, because we are. Because we're living with hope. So I was like, just try it. I mean, even if it's wrong, wouldn't you rather live like it's right? <laughs> but it is right. That's, that's why we're told to take up the armor of God, breastplates of righteousness, right? Sort of truth. How can Satan win if God is in control of the world? That's the other thing. Uh, Psalm 2, I'll make a, a, your enemies a footstool. Jesus comes to crush the devil's head. Satan can't win. He's not more powerful than, than God. So yeah, sure, there might be a skirmish here and there that might be troublesome, but, but you're on the winning team. This is a, a life of hope. <clears throat> Romans 8, 35, 39, we're almost done. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That does not sound like losers. It sounds like people who hold their heads high because they live under the authority and they serve the king of the universe. MacArthur made this comment that post-millennialists, it's like prosperity gospel. It is, in as much that it's God's prosperity of joy and building His kingdom. It is not in the Joel Osteenith, prosperityeth, send me twenty dollarseth kind, one person. one person. But but it is gospel prosperity. The gospel changes lives. It's changed everybody's life in here. It sure changed my life. Like that's hopeful. That's not loser. Like it it makes all things new. It it it's grace and mercy and peace. And so um, I'm just going to close us in prayer with the Lord's Prayer. You can feel free to pray along with me if you'd like, and then um, we'll get ready for church. And I'm really grateful to be hopeful with all of you. This really is a summer of hope, and we are a hopeful congregation because we are people of God. And God sits at the right hand, and He has conquered all things, and He picked all of you before the creation of the world, and he made you in his image to take dominion and beautify his creation. So let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.